Welcome to Season 3 of The Quad Pod, a podcast highlighting life at Baylor School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Inspired by the many converging paths on our campus where faculty, staff, students, alumni, and families meet, we bring you stories from all angles told by many voices. This episode is hosted by me, Abigail Bailey, Class of 23. And me, Spencer Chinnery, Class of 23. Well, it's that time of year again, back to school. Officially, I guess, our 13th year of formal education. How does it feel, Spencer? Um, pretty good. I'm excited for senior year, but I'm also ready for the next chapter. A little more freedom and, dare I say, excitement. Plus, I'll get to study more of what I want, so that's promising. Yeah, same. I'm sure there's a Twilight Zone episode out there about getting stuck in high school forever. I can't imagine. You mean teaching? I wasn't thinking of it that way, but I guess teachers who make a career of it are kind of stuck in time here, doling out the same assignments and grading the same math problems year after year. You really think it's like that? I mean, why would you? There are those nice breaks. I wonder what teachers do with that time. I remember seeing my sixth grade social studies teacher buying Tupperware at Walmart. I'm not sure the teaching life offers enough excitement for me. But who knows? I mean, maybe that Tupperware was for an epic cross-country road trip. I bet if we dug around, we'd find out there's more to teachers than just teaching. I mean, I've heard rumors. Which is why we decided to devote this episode to unveiling some of those teacher surprises, things you didn't know about Baylor faculty. First, we journey through the academic halls to uncover surprises hiding in plain sight. Then, we join band director Mae Weiss way up in the clouds, her home away from home on the weekends. Next, we hear how history teacher James Scott's passion for his Scottish heritage makes him a regular at weddings and funerals. And finally, we follow digital photography and walkabout instructor Bruno Poso to a location he'd rather not disclose for a little lesson in Zen. Still feeling in the dark about your teacher's other lives? Well, join us and get enlightened. And now, episode 16, More Than Teachers. First, Let's join senior Justin Todd as he goes from classroom to classroom, searching for clues that there just might be life outside of teaching for many of our faculty members. Justin asked teachers to point out the craziest or most exotic object in their classroom in the hopes that it might give him some insight into their lives outside of teaching. Here is his report. What is the craziest or most out there thing you have in your room? Hmm... It might be my giant ceramic fat squirrel named Russell. He has his own Instagram. Like all of my bobble heads, mm-hmm. um, from Star Wars to The Walking Dead to this giant Pope bobblehead. Um, the craziest thing I have in my classroom is an action figure of the medieval Pope, Innocent III, who is the most powerful medieval Pope of all in the 12th century, and it was given to me by a student who graduated two years ago when they were freshmen. They found it on eBay and thought of me, so. (laughs) Drum major helmet from college. So it's like a military-style helmet with a big curved plume on top. I have a giraffe and a pig. My Bob Flamingo. A lot of people do have plastic animals. The craziest thing I have in my classroom is a hedgehog. I have this hammer. Student made it and brought it to me because he felt like I needed to fight off some of the students in the class. Probably that really cool uh, Notre Dame made out of kirigami. It is the copper liner of an explosively formed projectile from an IED in Iraq circa 2009. And 
Now it's they're sometimes holding candy, sometimes holding dice in my classroom. I don't know, maybe that picture right there? Uh, it's not really crazy, but it's like the craziest thing that I've probably ever done in my life. Um, it's from Nepal when I went backpacking around Nepal for something like 30 days. And we were like, let's go to Nepal. We didn't even have like cold weather stuff. So we had to buy like all this bootleg cold weather gear from like a market in um, Pokhara, Nepal. And then we just decided to randomly start backpacking. Uh Probably my hamburger hat over there, or the cheeseburger hat. I had a student go and eat like a, this big, huge cheeseburger one time downtown, and you got a hat if you could eat it all. And so he got a hat, and he had to give it to me. And so that's why I have the cheeseburger hat in here. Next, Justin sits down with Mae Weiss, band director and 7th grade dean, to discuss how she's gained a new perspective on her life, literally. My name is Mae Weiss, and I'm the band director here at Baylor. I teach the 6th grade band, middle school band, upper school band, and I'm also the 7th grade dean. I've heard from a couple people that you've gotten into a very interesting hobby recently. What exactly is this? Uh, this summer I became a licensed skydiver. This is one of my training jumps. I have to prove that I can essentially go upside down and then reorient myself. Now I'm out the plane. Last fall, it was my dad's 60th birthday, and so he took me and my sister on a tandem, and I really enjoyed it. Um, you, as you know, there's always a lot going on at school, but when you're jumping out of a plane, you are only thinking about what is happening right now. And it's a really incredible feeling. And then once you get under canopy, you're essentially flying. So I thought to myself, this will not be the last time I do this. So over the summer, I pursued getting licensed. And now it's something I do regularly. So on that first jump that you took with your dad, what exactly were you thinking and feeling during that experience? Well, it was actually just me and my instructor in the plane. This was in Knoxville. This is not um, local. And the plane was so small, they could only take up two people at a time with their instructors. And so I let my dad go with my sister. And so I went up first. And the first thing I thought was, well, this is literally a bucket of bolts. The plane was not in great shape. So I was not super nervous about jumping out. <laughs> um, it is a little unreal. Once you get up past about 10,000 feet, you know, you don't feel like it's a height. It just feels like you are separate from the ground. Uh, but when you like essentially fling yourself out of the plane, like I said, you're thinking about one thing only, and it's that experience. There's no stomach drop or anything like you'd experience on a roller coaster. It's almost like swimming. You feel the, the pressure of it on you. Um, but then once you get under canopy, it's like you're floating, and it's absolutely silent. There's no sound except just the wind going through your canopy and whatever noises you may make. <laughs> Some people scream. I know I was like, yeah, like just having a great time. But it's so quiet and peaceful. Um, I've jumped by myself maybe 20 times at this point, like without instructors. But not only that, I've jumped by myself, but with other people. That's called relative work. So we're like we're both licensed skydivers, but we're essentially performing maneuvers in the air. So that's part of what I did this weekend is I was jumping with another person and we were 
working on movement in the air together. Oh, it's so fun. I do backflips on every solo jump now. So what kind of skill set or previous experience do you need to become a skydiver? Well, you have to be 18. So start there. Uh, And you really need no previous skills. It's just kind of like a high stakes driving license. Um, You start with a ground school, like you would start like reading a a driver's manual of about four hours. You go over all your emergency procedures because on your first jump, you are jumping with your own parachute. So there's no training wheels, essentially. Um, You start with two coaches actually like hanging on to you. But then once they let go and you're under your own parachute, you have a radio to talk with them. But you, you are getting yourself to the ground. And so from then on, you start doing with just one instructor holding on to you and then with just a coach in the air with you. And then you do a few solo jumps. And then just like driving, you do a check dive where you have to perform a lot of skills like turning around 360s in the air, doing flips, essentially disorienting yourself in the air and then reorienting yourself. Grabs me and then flings me forward without telling me. <laughs> Wham! without telling me yeah and so at a certain altitude i pull my parachute and then i'm there do like the emotions that you feel become more stable as you have gone through successive jumps or is it does it feel just as exciting or terrifying as the first time it becomes, uh, as you acquire more skills, you start thinking about that as opposed to like sheer terror or things like that. There's always a little bit of nerves, particularly on the plane ride up, because it takes about 15 minutes to get up to altitude if you're jumping from 13,000 feet, which is normal. Um, I would say I'm not nervous anymore. I'm more focused. Like, for example, I went this Saturday three times. Um, and on one of them, I was jumping with one of the owners and we were doing an exit that I'd never done before, which involves us like linking up. And it was totally literally backwards from everything I'd done. Like instead of facing into the wind, we were facing out of the wind. And so I was focused on that. I wasn't scared, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was a new sensation. Um, so I would say my emotions are less, you know, fear and more like achievements like i'm more focused on the skills now do you plan to continue skydiving throughout the year or do you think that you're going to keep it to the summer i'm definitely going to skydive throughout the year um you have to maintain your currency in order to stay licensed so i have to jump every 60 days or i'll essentially go backwards and then have to do some coach jumps in order to be able to jump again um plus it's just a lot of fun and i want to do it as much as i can (laughs) Uh, are you going to take skydiving to any new levels? Are there any like more certifications that you can get? Absolutely. Um, I am sort of working on my B license. So there are letters kind of like, again, getting your CDL, like mm-hmm. getting an advanced driver's license. So right now I have my A license for my B license. I need to do some more group jumps. Um, I have to actually practice a water landing as opposed to just talking about it. I have to put on a skydiving rig and jump in a pool and swim out of it so like to practice if i happen to land in the water what would i do um there's some canopy work i still need to do but that's what's next and then after that i can actually get my coach rating which means that i can jump with students and help them out and then there's other instructional ratings after that 
after I get a C license, then I can put a camera on my head and be a camera jumper and like jump with tandems. So that that's the ultimate goal is being able to do that during the summers. Okay. So how has skydiving outside of school affected your teaching life? At first, over the summer, um, when it, there was still some fear involved, I kept thinking, well, if I can jump out of a plane from 14,000 feet, I can do anything at school. Um, but now it's a little bit more the opposite. You know, when life gets stressful, I'm like, oh, I wish I was jumping out of a plane right now. <laughs> I just look up at the sky and I'm like, man, I, I could be up there. Like that is my playground. Um, so it's really been just a, a stress reliever and it's, it's a wonderful welcoming community. Um, I was at the drop zone for eight hours on Saturday, like talking with students, talking with teachers, um, working on skills, getting feedback, working on parachute packing. And it's just been a really great, like outside passion. Well, thank you so much, Mrs. Weiss, for joining us. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Justin. Can we do that for graduation? After I graduate, I'm 18? Who knows? Maybe I might. And now, senior Owen McDaniel joins history teacher and wrestling coach James Scott, class of 2000, to discuss how a middle school hobby blossomed into a full-blown talent that has friends, relatives, and Baylor knocking on his door for bookings. This is James Scott, class of 2000. I am a history instructor and assistant wrestling coach at the Baylor School. Uh, I'm Owen McDaniel, class of 2023, senior this year, and I'll be interviewing Mr. Scott. Everybody knows that you play the bagpipes at Convocation and I'm sure other areas. Could you tell us a little bit, could you tell us the story of how, how did you get into playing the bagpipes? Actually, it, it's kind of funny. My grandfather, I called him Opa. He brought me to a family reunion in Oak Ridge, and I was talking to this lady. I guess she was my great aunt. I didn't really know her, and I told her my opa had brought a bagpiper, had hired a bagpiper to play at the Scott family reunion, which makes a lot of sense. And I was telling my great aunt that I kind of sort of maybe wanted to consider perhaps thinking about looking into the possibility of maybe learning how to play the bagpipes. And apparently I had just informed the mouth of the South that I would be the new family piper. My family like grabbed onto that and kind of pushed me towards it. Uh, just so happened that my grandparents on my other side were gonna be in Scotland that summer and they brought home a set of bagpipes for me, which was very generous and then I went to my first lesson up on Lookout Mountain and my dad had received from my opa like every year for Christmas. It was turning into a running gag, a, a practice chanter, the, the thing that you learn how to play on. Mm. And I guess because his dad gave it to him, he's like, no, nah, I don't want to do that, dad. But once he sat through a lesson with me, he started learning too. And so I got to learn with my dad how to play the pipes. And it's it's been pretty cool. How long have you, like, is there like a number of years that you've played them for? Let's see. I guess I've played, I started learning my eighth grade year. And it takes about a year of learning the fingerings before you can actually get on the actual pipes and start wheezing and squeezing. 
um, you pass out a few times on that on that particular path. Like I would have to try and catch my dad because you kind of hyperventilate. It's it's pretty funny to watch. Um, but by I guess my freshman year, I was standing on the picnic tables outside the student center playing the bagpipes during my free period. That's awesome. Um, so when do you when do you play them at Baylor? Uh, just convocation. Recently, I've just been playing at uh, the Red Blazer ceremony. Um, but the reason that I've been playing at the Red Blazer ceremony is because Leslie Davenport asked me to. Um, previously, she asked me uh, when they opened up Roddy. I played the pipes when they opened up that building when I was a student. And so she remembered that I had done that and I had previously played. I Instead of giving a, a senior speech, I played the bagpipes, mm -hmm. which was kind of funny because then for like our big class picture out by the gate, everyone is like wearing a B-shirt. And then there's this one dude wearing a kilt with like a, a possum hanging in the... It was pretty funny. Can you tell me why, like, why you play? Do you, is there like a... You get a feeling when you play them? Is there anything like that? Initially, it was... I thought they they sounded cool and they're kind of weird and different, which it's nice to do something that's weird and different. Um, it's also a connection to my family's past, our ancestry and heritage. But it's an it's a weird sounding instrument, so it makes you feel it's a strange feeling when you hear it, and being able to. I remember my great uncle died when I was in Iraq and he was a huge fan of all of our Scottish heritage stuff. And I remembered I walked out into our motor pool. It was like two in the morning when I had found out and I played the pipes and this huge dust storm kicked up. And there's this, just the way that the drones reverberating and the, like you only get nine notes on the bagpipes, mm -hmm. but like just the way it sounds just kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I thought that, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a cool feeling. When I was a student, all my buddies would be like, oh, you're going to have to play at my wedding. And all of their dads are like, you're going to have to play at my funeral. And what's been strange as an adult is that that's starting to come to pass. I've played at my friends' weddings. I've marched friends down the aisle. Um, I, when my classmate, 2000 Logan Young, when his father passed away, I got to play. It's... It's a good thing to be able to do for people. And everybody gets the feels. To hear the full interview with Mr. Scott, touching on a number of topics from curing bacon to disabling bombs, go to our SoundCloud page or click the link below this episode on the Baylor website.
Piggybacking on our theme of surprising things you didn't know about faculty, we thought we'd share something students in the audio journalism elective here at Baylor have been working on. It's called a short list, and it's literally what it sounds like. A short list of objects from a student's life. Objects that together as a whole tell a story about that person. Only there's a catch. The challenge is to compile a list so that the listener has no idea how the objects relate to one another. That is, until the very end when the title list is revealed. Here is senior Caleb Hampton's short list. Challenge yourself. Can you guess what these list items share in common before Caleb reveals the connection? Monkey bars on my kindergarten playground. Dirt on a baseball field. A table in my kitchen. Grass in my backyard. My father. Roof of a school. A cracked bucket. A red and gray Baylor football helmet. My car. A football. My mom. My bike. A solid rock. A bed of nails. A skateboard. A Sprite can. The sheet of a bed. White railing in the front of my house. A worn down tire. My seven and nine year old little brothers. Things that I have sat on. Adding to his list, Caleb most recently sat down in one of our recording studio chairs with faculty member Bruno Poso, who teaches art and photography and assists with walkabout. Caleb and Mr. Poso discussed the latter's journey from South Africa to Chattanooga and how his keen observation skills enabled him to master a difficult craft where deception is king. Here is their conversation. Uh, this is Caleb Hampton. I'm a class of 2023. Uh, my name is Bruno Poso. I'm an art teacher here at Baylor and I also teach photography at Up School. Uh, and I've been here for going on three years. So I understand you grew up in South Africa. Uh, for those of us who haven't been there, can you say a little something about the culture and what it's like to grow up there? It's very similar to the U.S. in terms of its diversity. Um, so, that, you know, there's people from all over the world, all over different cultures. And um, and it, it's a very interesting place to grow up in. Uh, you know, I, I got the very end of apartheid. So... Um, I, I witnessed firsthand a lot of the segregation, racial segregation and things like that. Um, but um, to see a change and to see it getting better in those regards has been really, really great. Um, uh, unfortunately, South Africa's also got some, uh, some crime issues. So um, that was also quite difficult to grow up in that environment. But, um, you know, I, it's something that I miss. I, I miss how, how diverse it is. Um, you know, you literally have friends from all over Africa, all over the world. Um, all races and religions and um, and uh, it's everywhere. It's truly, truly everywhere there. And um, that was really cool. How did you make your way to the States, United States? So I met my wife in South Africa. Um, she was there on a fellowship. And um, and um, let's just say you know, one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, I was ready for a change at that point in my life. And uh, she was starting to settle down roots in Chicago. So I actually moved to Chicago to be with her and um, the rest is history. So out of all places, um, what made you want to come in, come here, Chattanooga, Tennessee to the Baylor School? Uh, it's, I kind of got you by almost skirting all around the, the US. You know, I lived in Seattle very briefly. Um, like I mentioned, I live in Chicago. I also lived in Texas for a while. And um, I left teaching in South Africa to go into outdoor education. 
and I um, and I worked for various companies all over the place, but I ended up working for REI. And um, and REI, when it opened up the store here, they had an ed- education department, and I came to Chattanooga to be a climbing and kayaking instructor. Um, and uh, and slowly but surely, I started teaching more and more art, like I used to. And uh, eventually, an opportunity opened up at Baylor, and and I and I and I jumped for it. So uh, you know, it's it's been great. So your roles here combine a love for the arts with a passion for being outdoors. When did your love for the arts begin and the outdoors? Growing up, I just was always drawing. I was just always making something and I loved taking photos and and, and I was good at it. So f- my parents uh, realized that very early on and they kind of pushed me into that direction. Um, you know, with the outdoors, I, th- I think that's always been my sort of true love. And, and, you know, I just love like natural history and I love spending time outside. I, I love trees. I love fish. I love most animals and um and i think that's been a big source of inspiration so going off of fish i heard you like fish uh something a lot of us do not know about you is that you're a master fly fisherman can you tell us more about that and how you got into that i started fly fishing when i was 12 years old so i've been fly fishing for most of my life and um you know i grew up in quite an outdoorsy family uh my dad was always out hunting and camping and fishing and um but one day I watched the river runs through it and you know, just something just clicked in, in my mind about it. Like it just really, really ignited my imagination. When I am alone in the half light of the canyon, all existence seems to fade to a being with my soul and memories. And the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise. And, um, so I kind of begged my parents to buy me a fly fishing rod and uh, I became the first fly fish person in my family. And um, since then, I kind of just, you know, just have loved the sport so much. And um, I love fishing for different species. Um, just before this interview, I actually counted all the different species I've caught. I've caught 77 different species wow. all over Africa and, um, and all over the North America. And, um, and it's just something that I really love. And, uh, and, and I love fly tying and um, so making flies. And, and I think there's something really, really special about that. Um, so what makes fly fishing different from other forms of fishing? Um, it's a lot of it's got to do with the tackle that you use. Um, you know, you've got a specific kind of rod and, and you also use flies instead of lures or bait. Mm-hmm. And flies are just basically, uh, they could, most of the time they're made out of natural, like uh, feathers and fur. But... Um, Nowadays, they also make them out of artificial materials too. Um, but basically, it's like a weightless little fly that imitates what fish eat. So they can be really, really tiny, just like a couple of millimeters big for certain bugs that say a trout eats. Or they can be a fly that's like over a foot long for fish that are very predatory, like a muskie, for instance. Do you have any secret spots that you might just keep to yourself that's a prime spot for you to go fishing? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Um, you know, there's a... If I have close friends, I'll, I'll show them where they are. Uh, but it's always something that I'm always co- kind of conflicted about because I obviously want people to go out into nature and enjoy it. And, um, and people protect what they love. So the more fishermen and fly fishermen you have accessing the rivers, the more people you have to really take care of them. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you have an impact on, on these river systems. And um, especially a lot of small rivers, uh, 
you know, you can't have lots of people there because they're just going to trash the place up, unfortunately, and they're going to really impact fish life. So, you know, I, more and more as I get older, I get more and more tight-lipped about where I go fishing and what I like to, to fish for. What qualities do you consider an expert fly fisherman might have? It's being very observant um, and patient. Um, I think when, when, you know, what makes good fly fishermen a fly fish person is when they get to the water's edge and they spend more time observing than trying to just fish. Um, you know, seeing what bugs are out there, seeing if they can see fish, um, considering the environment that they're in and just taking it all in. It's not just your time on the water, you know, I, I actively spend a lot of time reading about fly fishing and, um, and also making flies. Um, it's kind of like a all-encompassing pursuit. One of the things moving out into the southeast that I've really loved is fishing for native brook trout. And brook trout um, have been here since the ice ages. And, um, and because of obviously climate change and, and all those things, they're getting pushed up high and high into the Smoky Mountains. And, um, and it's, just, it's just amazing to be in an environment that's, that's pristine and seeing these like tiny, tiny little fish that live in, in water that is like ankle deep sometimes and they can still survive. Um, and there's just something so beautiful about just, you know, walking up these tiny little streams and just hopping from one little pool to the next waterfall. And and, um, and every time I do that, I, I just I just wish the day would never end. It's just, I just want to go up to the next pool, the next waterfall. And But that's just something that I've really been like, you know, just in love with since moving out here. Okay, turns out there's definitely more happening in our teachers' lives outside the classroom than we thought. From jumping out of planes to playing the pipes and tying flies, our faculty slays. Thank you to all those who shared their hobbies and passions. Until next time, this has been Abigail Bailey and Spencer Chinnery with, with the, the Quad, Quad Pod. Pod.